Sometimes it can feel like you've already watched every show out there. Enter Acorn TV. Acorn TV streams the most binge-worthy of British programming, from cozy mysteries and police procedurals to delightful period dramas and so much more. Do you love a clever, cheeky whodunit? Then check out Midsummer Murders. The new season is out now. Two murders in the same wood within three weeks. This is the country. And in the country, anything goes. Acorn TV is just $5.99 a month. And proof listeners can try Acorn TV for free for 30 days. Go to acorn.tv and use promo code PROOF. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV, code P-R-O-O-F. Hey guys, Bridget here. Before we start this week's episode of Proof, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description, and we want to know what you think. It only takes a few minutes, and it really helps us to make the show better. Now, on to Proof. I'm walking through a field behind my house in Japan looking for damage from wild boars. I'm in Ishikawa Prefecture, which is on the Sea of Japan side of Honshu, the main island, in a little town called Yamanaka. Yamanaka actually means in the mountains, and every direction I look, there are mountains. This field is totally overgrown with weeds, and there are these big mud pits. There's one right there, dug by wild boars. And the boars, they come and they root around for worms and grubs and tubers. And of course, what they really love is stuff that we grow, like grains, sweet potatoes. This whole field that's all weeds now used to be rice paddies and vegetable gardens. But my neighbors, who are mostly elderly, have completely given up on trying to grow anything here. They just got too tired of trying to deal with the boars. But I'm trying, and so far my little vegetable garden's okay. But I'm worried because I see these footprints, I see these mud pits, and the boars are definitely around. So my friend Sakura, who's a hunter, agreed to come by and take a look. And there's this box trap over there at the edge of the woods. And she offered to set it and try to catch the boars. I said, let's not tell my husband, Hiroshi. He's pretty much vegan, and he loves pigs and boars. Hiroshi feels sorry for the boars, and that made her laugh. But Sakura said she loves boars too. I know she does. She really seems to relate to them. Her name means cherry blossom, but her spirit is really more like a sturdy boar than a delicate flower. As much as she loves boars, though, she said they cause so much trouble for people, so she has to do something about it. Inoshishi is the word for boar, and the baby boars are called uribo, which means melon boy, because they're round and striped like a watermelon. They're incredibly cute, but Sakura tells me that even uribo can do a lot of damage. 
And I've learned this battle between boars and humans is at least as old as agriculture in Japan. In this episode, author Hannah Kirshner brings us to rural Japan. We follow a boar hunter named Sakura Yoshida. Along the way, we'll untangle misconceptions about meat consumption and game hunting in Japan. To do that, we have to look at shifting relationships between humans, livestock, and wild animals all throughout history. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. You know the drill. A friend lands a new job or a birthday sneaks up on you, and you need a gift. And you need it delivered fast. So what do you do? Well, if you want something delicious, locally made, and handcrafted, you should head to Edible's website or visit your local store. They've got so much more than just fresh fruit arrangements as well. There's all kinds of gourmet treats to choose from, like miniature New York-style cheesecakes or dark chocolate caramel popcorn. Or how about fresh-dipped chocolate strawberries? Well, Edible has something for every occasion and price point. And you can even get same-day delivery for those last-minute birthdays and other occasions. Or free next-day delivery. Visit edible.com or your local Edible store and get $10 off your order when you use the code PROOF at checkout. That's E-D-I-B-L-E dot com, offer code PROOF. Sakura has a real intimacy with her food and where it comes from. I think many of us aspire to that, but wouldn't really be comfortable with the messy reality of it. <laughs> Sakura says that no matter how cute the boars are, they cause problems for humans, like the damage in the fields around my house. Sakura loves boars, but she says, as a human, I want to help humans, so I have to say sorry to the boars. Sakura started hunting about four years ago because she wanted to help her neighbors. She switched her shift at the convenience store to work overnight so she could be free in the morning to hunt. And now she has a part-time job doing park maintenance up in the mountains. She spends most of her time outside where she wants to be. She's in her mid-40s, and hunting has become her life. Her husband runs an osteopathy clinic. Sakura had never even considered hunting until she heard about the trouble his patients were having with boars. She remembers a neighbor complaining about the boars destroying her fields. They would dig up and eat the sweet potatoes just before they were ready to harvest, she said. And they'd eat all the bamboo shoots in a grove nearby. Our friend Nimaira-san complains about it too. He's in his 60s, and he revived the rice fields in his childhood village outside Yamanaka, further up in the mountains. In the last 15 years, he says the boars have destroyed his whole rice crop three or four times. That's 100 kilos of rice, gone overnight. More than 200 pounds. And the most infuriating part is they will eat like half the grains on a stalk and then just trample the rest. <laughs> he says he wants to give up. Nimaida-san can go to the supermarket if he runs out of rice, but you can imagine if you were farming all your own food, 
that would be devastating. And actually, in the 18th century, thousands of peasants died because of what became known as the wild boar famine. Farming was becoming more commercial in that period, so people were relying less on wild foods. Forests turned into farmland, and that pitted people against boars. And that's the problem we're still dealing with. So Hannah, how did you come to live in Japan? And I want to know how you met Sakura. Well, actually, I wrote a book about Yamanaka. The book is called Water, Wood, and Wild Things. And it's about people making the things that weave together into the local culture and community. For the past five years or so, I've been learning from woodworkers, seeing how sake is made, practicing tea ceremony, foraging with mountain masters, things like that. Inoshishi come up a lot in conversation here, so I felt I needed to include a boar hunter in my book. Sakura let me tag along with her for a season of hunting. So all these things started as research for water, wood, and wild things, but now the book is out and I still live in Yamanaka, and these people I was writing about have become my friends. I'm working at the sake brewery seasonally, I'm still taking tea lessons, and I bought a house here. I learned to grow rice over the last few years, and it's my dream to revive the rice fields around my house. <laughs> Nimaida-san says I shouldn't even try. All my friends and neighbors warn me that if I grow rice, even more boars will come. Well, I'm assuming that since boars are an ongoing problem, fences have not provided the simple answer? Well, yeah, it's complicated. Boars are strong and they're really clever, so eventually they'll break through a fence or find a way around. But also, it's because of the way farmland is in Japan. Usually, everyone in the village or neighborhood has their own plot, but the plots are all clustered together in one part of town. So the risk is shared, which means if you fence only your plot, then you make your neighbor more vulnerable. You'd need to fence the whole area, but there's often not the money or the will to do that, especially because rural Japan is becoming less populated. Young people have moved to the cities, and so it's mostly old people left in the countryside. So are these boars considered an invasive species in Japan? I mean, in the southeastern United States, we have a huge boar problem. Yeah, actually, in Japan, this kind of Eurasian boar is indigenous. They do sometimes breed with domesticated pigs, but basically, they're an indigenous species. But they were almost completely wiped out here in Ishikawa in the 1720s. That's the part of Japan where I am. I read about it in a book by Brett Walker. After a year of awful crop damage, all men between 15 and 60 were enlisted to hunt the boars with spears. After that, boars were rare here in Ishikawa, and anyway, there was too much snow for many to survive through the winter. Actually, no one remembers there being boars around here at all. But that changed about 10 years ago. The climate is changing, and so is the territory of the boars. Sakura tells me deer are coming now too. First it was the boars, and now it's the deer. A few years ago when I got a tick bite, the doctor told me I didn't need to worry about Lyme disease because there are no deer in this part of Japan. But Sakura can tell you otherwise. She's in the woods hunting, so she sees them. And are there any natural predators to keep the deer and boar populations all in check? Well, at this point, only humans. There were wolves in Japan, but they were driven to extinction at the beginning of the 20th century. The Japanese wolf was much smaller than the North American wolf, so it's not like you can just bring in other wolves to replace them. Well, that overpopulation can lead to big issues. I know this from personal experience, because... 
Where I live, the wild turkey population is getting out of control. I mean, they are super aggressive. I even had one sit right outside of my car door waiting for me to exit. And I was stuck in there for, I'd say, a good 20 minutes. Yikes, I've heard about those bully turkeys. Well, it seems like here in Japan, there's news of an old lady getting knocked down or a boar running through a school or something like that happening somewhere every week. And in rural areas where there are very few people, the boars get really bold. Sakura works with other hunters to patrol a bunch of box traps set up at the edges of town. They're set up on side roads heading into the mountains or between fields and forest. When it's her week to patrol, she'll be up at 5 or 6 in the morning. She drives around to check each trap and see if there's a boar. And if it's a big one, she'll call the other hunters, and they'll help her kill it and process it. While I was working on water, wood, and wild things, I spent a whole winter making the rounds with her, and I ended up learning to skin and butcher a boar, and sometimes I had to help Sakura when the other hunters couldn't come. Oh, I'd love to know what that experience was like. It wasn't something I ever imagined I'd want to do. I grew up where there's a lot of hunting in rural Washington state, outside Seattle, but my family doesn't hunt, and I had never gone. I had this really negative stereotype of hunting because I loved animals and nature. But actually, hunters like Sakura are a lot closer to nature than most of us are. The hunters I've met have a deeper understanding of how we affect the ecosystems we live in. You really need to know an animal well to hunt it, and that tends to make you respect it. That takes a certain kind of humility. Yeah, that's been my experience as well in talking with hunters. Now, we're not talking about trophy hunters here, but specifically the people who hunt to put food on the table. Yeah. And you know, my family did raise some animals for meat, but a lot of our livestock ended up being more like pets. I mean, I had a rooster so tame I could paint his toenails. I honestly feel really ambivalent about taking the lives of animals so we can eat them. It's easier to just turn a blind eye or draw a clear line about what's okay or what's not. So I have a lot of respect for Sakura, how she can love boars, but also hunt them. This spring, I rode along with Sakura again for a few days to see how it was going. We hadn't seen each other in a while, so we caught up in the car. While we were driving around, we chatted about whether the Olympics will happen, what we're planting in our vegetable gardens, and that kind of thing. She told me her hunting mentor, Hoshiba-san died last year. He was in his 70s. She told me she's struggling because she doesn't have anyone to teach her now. I asked if she's trying to find a new hunting teacher. Sakura said she is, but a sense of connection is really important. And she can't find a mentor she connects with. Sakura was the first woman hunter in this area. Before she met Hoshiba-san, she had a hard time getting someone to teach her. We sat down one day in March to talk. Hoshiba-san 
She's saying, Hoshiba-san didn't care at all about the fact that we were hunting together, just the two of us. But other hunters really didn't think it was appropriate that the two of us would go in the woods together. The other thing she mentioned is that some men thought a woman wouldn't be strong enough to go hunting, which is nonsense. And anyway, when Sakura was younger, she was on the national judo team. She doesn't compete anymore, but she still practices with her teenage daughters. But now, Sakura says she's having a hard time finding a teacher who shares her way of thinking and who doesn't have those hang-ups about women. Well, what about finding another woman who hunts? Wouldn't that work for her? Well, yeah, but there are a few problems. Her hunter friends who are women live in different towns, and there are territories. You're only really supposed to hunt in your own area. But also, Sakura says she has no interest in making a women's hunting group. She's saying, I want to get rid of the way of thinking that, oh, because you're a woman or only if you're a woman. I don't think there's any reason to distinguish between female hunters and male hunters. So I have no interest in creating a women's hunting group or a girls' hunting club or anything like that. As long as you want to hunt, it shouldn't matter what your sex is. That's the attitude I want to focus on. And as I keep hunting alongside men, I hope they will start to think that way too. The other thing Sakura told me that cracks me up is that apparently people were worried about how a woman could pee in the woods. I mean, I played in the woods every day when I was a kid, so this just does not seem like a problem to me. If you need to pee, you pee. It hasn't been a problem for Sakura, but she says it would be really convenient to be able to pee standing up. She says that's the only advantage men have over women with hunting. <laughs> so anyway, Hoshiba-san was a really special mentor. He wanted Sakura to learn how to skin and butcher a boar before she could learn how to hunt. She's saying Hoshiba-san was originally a chef at a hotel, specializing in washoku, Japanese cuisine. The most important thing he taught me, she says, was to always eat the animals that I hunted. This was his first lesson not how to hunt well, but to make sure I eat the animals that I kill. When I take an animal's life, I should respect that life by eating the animal. This was the first thing I learned from him. And how does Sakura prepare the boar? She's always trying different things. She has an oven, which is not that common in a Japanese kitchen. I'm envious, actually. She might brine and roast a tenderloin. She told me that lately she's been cooking the meat sous vide with rosemary and garlic. She also has a dehydrator that she uses to make treats for her dogs. So do people in Japan eat a lot of game? Because I know consumption here has definitely been on the increase for a few years, and it really spiked last year during the pandemic. Besides hunters like Sakura, most people don't eat game these days. And for a lot of people, boar meat has as bad a reputation as the animals do. The image is that the meat is stinky and tough. It's hard to find traditional local recipes for boar. In the past, people were eating some boar. But with modernization and westernization, 
it was displaced by farmed meat. The image of Japanese food, and what most people in Japan will also say is typical, is fish, rice, and miso soup. But really, people do eat a lot of pork, beef, and chicken, not to mention bread and pasta. So tell me about some of the more popular meat-centric dishes that people eat these days. Well, you know what's interesting? A lot of the popular Japanese dishes that contain meat have a foreign origin. Ramen is considered Chinese food in Japan. And katsu, those breaded and fried pork cutlets, that comes from the word cutlets, katsuretsu. Yakiniku, grilled meat, that's basically Korean barbecue, and its history is related to Japan's colonization of Korea. Most of those famous Japanese meat dishes only became popular in the last hundred years or so. Even wagyu, the super tender and marbled Japanese beef, it's a relatively new thing. That's because there were a lot of taboos around eating meat until the late 1800s, the beginning of the Meiji period. Huh, so why is that? Were people largely vegetarian or pescatarian? Well, it's more complicated than that. I asked Takeshi Watanabe to help explain the history of meat eating in Japan, which is entangled with people's relationship to wild boars. I'm Takeshi Watanabe. I teach at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. I teach East Asian studies broadly. And I also teach food history. I'm actually uh, American, but my parents are Japanese and they went back and forth because of my father's job. And so my first memories are of Japan. My initial understanding and the way it's often explained is that Buddhism was a reason for rules or taboos against eating meat. But that's not the whole story. So in the Nara period, in the 8th century or so, there was an emperor who was a very devout Buddhist. And he did issue this edict that banned meat-eating. And the edict does mention Buddhism. Or Buddhism is the reason that is given that we should not eat particular kinds of meat. But actually, more and more scholars believe it was political. And so the banned meats are things like cows, oxen, uh, because they were very important for rice agriculture. And it wasn't necessarily that the emperor was concerned about killing cows and oxen, but it was more about killing very precious livestock that was necessary for transportation and labor. But you could kill a boar that was threatening your crops. And in fact, many of the rules only apply to the growing season, so I guess what you did with your livestock in the winter was your own business. But also, this part is very relatable. People didn't want to eat the animals that were part of their household. And you know, the elites were Buddhist, but it's not clear how much Buddhism was part of regular people's lives. It was definitely mixed up and entwined with other kinds of ethics and belief systems too, like Shinto, which is not really a religion so much as a belief that there is a spirit in all things, particularly in nature. I asked Takeshi whether Shinto had an influence on how people thought about meat-eating. The value system is very vague. You know, there's no Ten Commandments that you're supposed to follow. But one of the beliefs or prohibitions or taboos surrounds blood and the shedding of blood. Buddhism is more about you do not want to incur bad karma by intervening, by disrupting karma or creating pain and suffering in this world. Whereas the Shinto taboos around blood are more about purity and about kind of taboos. And so slaughtering animals 
was also a very taboo occupation. But there were exceptions for eating meat for medicinal purposes. And there were euphemisms to make it more palatable, like calling boar meat botan, which means peony. With this history of taboos and bans on eating certain kinds of animals, especially livestock, we're talking about over a thousand years. People definitely were eating some meat, even if there was a stigma attached to it, and even if there were edicts banning it. Right, and the emperor and subsequent emperors have had to issue them again and again. And what that means is that these edicts were not followed. And remember, boar was never explicitly banned. Imagine you're a peasant farmer. You have to pay taxes in rice, that's your currency. So most of the rice you grow, you have to give to the government. And then you're growing other grains and vegetables for yourself and collecting wild food too. You are dependent on lots of different kinds of things around you to survive, especially also if your crop fails, right? If you have drought or famine or just, there's so many things that could go wrong. Then hunting, is, is yet another lifeline, right? You, and, and you're not going to deny your family that resource if, if, if that's what you need. By hunting a boar or deer, you could protect what you were growing and gain another source of food. The pest control efforts that Sakura helps with are part of this long battle between farmers and the wildlife that want to eat their crops. Of course, Attitudes about hunting and motivations have shifted over time and across different classes. Some samurai, for example, hunted for sport. But even if eating game meat was acceptable under specific circumstances, eating livestock was generally frowned upon. Those attitudes change uh, with westernization and the Meiji period, when Japan was uh, forced open by Commodore Perry from the United States. When Commodore Matthew C. Perry arrived with his fleet of black ships in 1853, Japan had been mostly closed to exchange with the West for a few hundred years. Then suddenly, there was this sense that Japan had fallen behind. Japan was clearly on the defensive. And if the idea was, well, if you can't beat them, you got to, you know, join them. So basically, you know, in a generation or two, Japan is able to modernize at an unprecedented pace. The Japanese government hired military experts from the West to advise them for their uh, modernization. And these experts were telling Japanese that, you know, they're too small and they need to like bulk up and eating meat was the solution. With modernization and westernization, game meat was almost entirely displaced by farmed meat. And this changed people's relationship to the environment, too. If you're growing vegetables and grains, wolves are helpers because they kill the deer and boars that might eat your crop. But if you're raising livestock, the wolves become a threat. And so, within a few decades, wolves were hunted to extinction. We just eliminated our ally in the ancient battle against boars. So, you might wonder how this all played out in terms of what people were actually eating. At the beginning of the Meiji period, in the late 1800s, most people didn't really have a taste for red meat or anything bloody or fatty. Tuna belly was sometimes fed to cats. So, most meat dishes from that period are really heavily seasoned with things like soy sauce and miso to cover up some of that red meat flavor. One of the first dishes to become popular was gyu nabe, It was basically cubed 
beef with green onions or scallions and kind of like skiaki today, right, with some vegetables. And so that was one popular dish. Another one that emerges from this time is actually kare uh, raisu or curry rice. And that was brought through the British military advisors. And the British were thought to have the world's best navy at the time. And so the Japanese employed these people to teach and train their own navy. So that's how Japan ended up with such a new meat cuisine relative to the country's long history. And that's why game is generally excluded from what most people think of as their national cuisine. That British interpretation of Indian curry has now become thoroughly Japanese. Japanese curry is made with a roux, and the spices tend to be sweet and mild. Most people buy bricks of the spiced roux and add it to simmered carrots, onion, potato, and some kind of meat. Usually, it's beef or pork. But if you live in a rural area like Yamanaka, you might sometimes get meat from a hunter. That never completely went away in the countryside. And a lot of my friends here, if Sakura gives them some boar meat, they'll make curry, because it's pretty foolproof, everyone loves it, and it disguises the gamey flavor of the boar. And this is a little different from the gyunabe that Takeshi was talking about, but another thing people around here will occasionally make with boar meat is nabe. Nabe just means pot, but it's also the soup or stew you make in that pot. Nabe is another one of those foolproof dishes, kind of a default if you're not sure what to cook. So shishi nabe, or boar nabe, that usually has napa cabbage, carrots, some satoimo, which is a kind of taro. It can have other root vegetables like burdock or potato. It can have mushrooms, and it's seasoned really heavily with miso. But this is interesting. If you ask people in Yamanaka if there are traditional recipes for boar meat, they'll say no. There are no local recipes passed down through generations, and eating boar is a novelty. Most people, especially city people, have never had any kind of game. It's just my personal impression that because of maybe the slaughtering and the hunting and the kind of country associations with it, because it's not urban, it's tied with maybe farmers, it's more maybe survival food, it wasn't high-end. But that's changing. Now, in Japan, when people talk about game, they use the word GBA, from the French GBA, meaning game. It first appeared in a Japanese newspaper in 1985, and now, GBA is the word people use to talk about game. GBA is trendy in fancy restaurants and among people who are interested in local food. Anything French in Japan is very haute, and anything kind of related vaguely to the West also gains prestige immediately. And it's just, unfortunately, this legacy of imperialism, I think, and those restaurants that serve game in uh, Tokyo and in Omotesando or Azab, like these very trendy, expensive neighborhoods, uh, are trying to tap into that French cuisine and that tradition to overcome other connotations that the meat had uh, in earlier history. Inoshishi is stinky country food, but GBA is sophisticated and cool. Kind of the way there's been this boom of charcuterie and nose-to-tail butchery in the U.S., which also has its roots in peasant food, right? 
In Japan, the national government is promoting GBA as a way to deal with pest animals. And some people see it as a way to revive rural economies where agriculture and traditional industries are fading. Here's Sakura. Sakura says that people want to try GBA, but that doesn't mean they really start eating it all the time. It's still hard to come by, and it's expensive if you're not a hunter or if you're not friends with a hunter. Sakura says that people are used to pork or beef from the supermarket that's soft and marbled, or higher-ranked meat, as Sakura puts it. Industrially farmed meat is very consistent. People are used to buying meat that's already cut into bite-sized pieces or thin slices and very easy to cook. The quality of game meat can vary, and the amount of fat. So it takes some skill to cook, especially if you don't throw it in a curry or nabe where you boil the heck out of it and disguise it with a lot of seasoning. Every once in a while, a hunter will drop off some boar meat at a restaurant in Yamanaka, and they'll make kushiyaki. The meat is cut into bite-sized pieces and grilled on skewers. But often it's kind of tough and pungent. I've had some pretty bad versions, so I can see why people don't like it. But Sakura took me to this izakaya that specializes in GBA. It's in her hometown, Hakusan, about an hour from Yamanaka. The chef is a hunter, and he makes kushiyaki that is really good. When we return, Hannah tries some GBA and learns more about hunting traditions in Japan. While we've all been itching to go outside and feeling cooped up, if you will. The hens at Pete and Jerry's Organics have been living a life of freedom. They've been roaming around in open pastures, foraging for delicious grasshoppers and grubs, and munching on organic feed. This lifestyle and a good diet makes their eggs the highest quality in the egg aisle. Pete and Jerry's Organic eggs have tall, firm yolks with a deep golden hue and creamy texture. Perfect for use for a comforting egg drop soup or an old-fashioned vanilla frozen custard. Just like those hens, let your imagination roam free about your next recipe using Pete and Jerry's organic eggs. Believe in what you buy. Pete and Jerry's organic eggs are available nationwide at a fine grocer near you. The folks at OXO go to great lengths to make sure that their products are tested thoroughly. Take the Conical Burr coffee grinder. OXO turned a conference room into a desert just to tackle the static electricity that was causing coffee grinds to stick to earlier versions. Here's senior product engineer Mac Moore. Static is something that we wanted to fix, and we sealed up a conference room with tape and foam around all the gaps, and we brought in a a heavy-duty dehumidifier and brought the temperature up and the humidity down. So it's just like your house in the middle of the winter when you get zapped every time you walk across the floor. That was what we needed to do to push the grinder to the limits. Rigorously tested coffee grinders, less static, and so much more. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better guaranteed.
And now back to our story. It looks like any regular isekaya, kind of a casual gastropub, except there's all this hunting paraphernalia. There's bear skin and pheasant feathers and antlers. There's a target on the wall with bullet holes in it and a bunch of hunting badges lined up on a ledge. I noticed this poster for the Japan Hunters Association with two women carrying guns, wearing the same orange vest and ball cap that Sakura has. The chef's name is Shigetoshi Okumura, and the name of the izakaya is San Kairi, which means Mountain Sea Village. Okumura is frying and grilling things behind a long counter, and his wife helps pour drinks and brings food to a couple of tables. He hunts some of the meat himself and also gets it from hunter friends. Okumura is saying, I get my vegetables from friends who are farmers or the local agricultural co-op. As much as possible, I follow, buy locally, consume locally. I use fish that I either catch myself or get from a former classmate who's a fisherman. Okumura has been cooking since he graduated high school, and he mostly worked in Italian, French, and high-end Chinese restaurants. He's got all the typical izakaya things on the menu, like sashimi, cucumbers with miso, lots of fried or grilled foods that go well with drinks. And then he has a lot of original recipes, too. He says one of the most popular things is bear sashimi, which I was pretty reluctant to try. (laughs) Don't imagine. I also feel sorry. I feel sorry for the bear. I don't want to eat it. I know it's already already dead. I don't know. It's beautiful. We also tried badger jjigae, like the Korean stew, boar spare ribs, steamed Chinese buns with boar filling. I'm glad we each got our own. I don't want to share it. Deer katsu and a charcuterie plate. The charcuterie plate had inoshishi ham, deer ham, smoked deer, smoked badger liver, miso-cured duck, and homemade bacon. And of course, we tried the shishi kushiyaki. It was one of the best things, and Okumura told me how he makes it. He cuts the boar meat into bite-sized pieces, and he marinates it for at least a day with a mix of salt, sugar, ground ginger, five spice, black pepper, and a little baking soda to tenderize it. He just slides those onto a skewer and grills them, and he serves it with a little homemade yuzu kosho, a blend of yuzu peel and green chili pepper. The meat really was very tender, and the spices are subtle, but I think they mellow out the gaminess. That's one of his most popular items, and it seems like a pretty easy introduction to GBA. He says the advantage of an izakaya is that it's really casual. You can try a lot of different things while you drink and talk with your friends or colleagues. Some of his regulars are other hunters, but he has a lot of people trying GBA for the first time. Okumura never pushes anyone to eat something they don't want to, but he really wants people to know GBA can be delicious. I asked him if there's anything else he wants people to know. Mm, 
He said he wants people to know that hunters are like volunteers. They are helping nature and they're helping other human beings. And he says he wants them to know it's not easy. You can't just decide to be a hunter and start the next day. You need permits and you need to pay annual fees. He also wanted to say that it's difficult to own a gun in Japan. And hunting is expensive. So, how does a person become a hunter? Sakura told me what it was like for her. It was a tough six months to get started, she said. She said she needed two hunting licenses, one for using a gun and one for using a box trap. And then, the most difficult thing was getting a permit to own a gun. First, you have to pass a written test and a practical test. Then, the police do a background check. They look into everywhere you've lived or worked over the past 10 years. And they come talk to your neighbors to make sure you're not mentally unstable or violent. They also have to confirm that you have the right kind of place to keep the gun. You need to have a gun locker, Sakura tells me, and it has to be permanently fixed to the wall, and it has to have three locks, and you can't tell your family where the keys are. You need to install another lockbox in a different room for ammunition, but that one can have just one key. And then, once you have the hunting license and a gun license, you still need to pay an annual fee to be allowed to hunt. The fee is about $300 per year, and you're allowed to hunt from November to March. But if you do pest control, a lot of places will waive part of the fee or even pay for each boar you catch. And you can keep trapping boars all year because they're a threat to crops. So you mentioned box traps a little earlier. I, I guess that means Sakura doesn't always use a gun? Yeah, she can't use her gun at most of the traps because they're too close to where people live. When she does go gun hunting, that means going into the woods searching for boars. For that, she needs a team, or at least one other person to go in the woods with her. But mostly, Sakura traps boars near town. The box trap is like a big wire cage with a trip wire. There's a hole at the top, so if you accidentally catch a bear, they can just climb out. The boars can't get out, though. To kill them, she electrocutes them. So this spring, I was out making the rounds with Sakura for a few days, and most of the time there's nothing. It's kind of nice just driving around and stepping out to walk in the woods a little. You really notice the seasons changing day by day. But then one morning she picks me up. And she's like, oh my god, I got one. And it's energetic. She painted creosote on the trap because the boars like the smell, and it worked. Her car is all outfitted for hunting. 
In the back, she's got tubs and bags for dealing with the meat, knives for butchering. She's got hooks for rain gear and gloves. And it always kind of smells like Inoshishi. Oh, wow. It's like the size of a kind of medium-sized dog, maybe bigger. No, it's like the size of a big dog. The boar sees us and starts throwing itself against the cage. It's panicked, and this, for me, is the hardest part, seeing its fear. If you're squeamish, you might want to skip ahead about a minute and 30 seconds. But I think it's valuable to know this part of the story, too, particularly if you do eat meat. Sakura has what looks like a spear, attached by a cable to what looks like a car battery. She clamps another set of cables to the trap to make a circuit with the battery, and then she stabs the boar to conduct the current. The boar stiffens and collapses in the mud, and then she drags it out of the trap and cuts its jugular to drain the blood. That seems to go on forever. I watch the blood stain the boar's fur and pool on the ground. Sakura says draining the blood makes the meat taste better. After a few minutes, Sakura drags the boar to her car and heaves it into a large shallow bin in the back. I feel so sad to see an animal die. Every time, it's sad. But then, as soon as we drive away, we see more of their destruction. This whole hillside is dug up and big rocks are sliding across the road. That kind of destruction can't be good for other animals either if there are too many boars. And it makes me wonder what could happen to my garden too. Hey there, Proof listeners, it's Bridget here, and I've got a real craving for mangoes lately. So I called on my test kitchen colleague, Carmen Dongo, to see if she can point me to some exciting new recipes. Hey, Carmen. Hey, Bridget. So what do you have for me? Well, here's some delicious options. You can have them no matter what season or time of year. First up, mango mint salsa. This salsa is fresh and delicious, combining sweet mango, tart lime juice, and spicy minced jalapeno. Oh, this sounds so good because it's going to heat you up and cool you down at the same time. That's right. (laughs) Next up, we have amkilasi, also known as mango yogurt drink. Our recipe uses a pinch of salt and squeezed lime to perk up the flavors of the mango. Perfect. I could drink that by the gallon. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have Middle Eastern pickled mango. Did you know mangoes can be fermented? Ooh, tell me more. This process will both preserve the mangoes and add a little pucker to it. It's great to eat on its own, or you can use it to make a pickled mango sauce called amba, which can be used on seafood, kebabs, 
and even eggs. Nutritious and delicious. Go to mango.org proof for tantalizing mango recipes and to learn more about mangoes. Sakura has to go to work, but first she takes the boar to the river where she can gut it and clean it. She drags the boar down to the river and washes its fur. Then she saws open its belly and pulls out all the organs. She'll keep the heart and the liver, and the rest she leaves for scavengers. Often, the crows and hawks start circling as soon as they see her. She leaves the gutted boar to chill in the river while she goes to work. I'll come over to her house later in the evening when she skins and butchers it. While she's driving me back home, we talk about making our own food. Sakura says she feels sorry for the boars, but it feels so good to go into the mountains, catch them herself, and then cook them herself. She's excited about growing her own vegetables too, caring for them and then eating them. We notice that the wild ume blossoms are starting to bloom early, and then that reminds us it'll be time in a few months to make umeboshi. We both made miso last week. Sakura is growing rice again this year with one of our friends. And then she's got the meat she hunts. It's everything she needs for a meal. That evening, Sakura brings home the boar that she kept chilling in the river. She picks me up and we go to her house to skin and butcher the boar. Her friend Yoshiko Tanaka is there. She's a hunter from another town. Her nickname is Takasan, and that's what we call her. And Takasan is so cool, by the way. She rides a Harley, and she has a cute Hokkaido hunting dog named Chikua, which is a kind of fish cake. Anyway, they hang up the boar in the entryway. Sakura has this whole setup. They rinse off the boar and hang it on a hook to drip dry, and then they set up a table for butchering. They put the boar on the table with its legs up in the air, and Sakura's two dogs are watching from behind a doggy gate. While Sakura and Takasan are skinning the boar, they're just chatting about their days, about Sakura's husband, and asking me about my part-time job at the sake brewery. While they're having this conversation, they keep making small incisions between the skin and the fat, working their way around until they can cut off the feet and then the head, and then just fold up the skin and throw it away. At some point, the boar stops being an animal and becomes meat. They cut out the spine and divide up racks of ribs and sections of legs. Meanwhile, they're commiserating about some of the macho guys they have to deal with, and Takasan says the mountain god or spirit is supposedly female. Like, 
People used to say, if a woman went deep in the mountains, she'd make the mountain spirit jealous. So women weren't allowed to go hunting. The hunters thought, if women came along, they wouldn't catch anything. Or anyway, that was the excuse. It's the same with sake breweries, I tell them. That was the excuse for keeping women out. It would make the sake spirit jealous. But I think if she's a woman, shouldn't we be friends? <laughs> Sakura agrees that'd be good. Takasan points out a lot of those old superstitions and beliefs, they're really about honoring the mountains. And she says that worshiping nature is part of a lot of indigenous cultures, like the Ainu in Japan and indigenous peoples in the Americas, too. And the part that Takasan and Sakura relate to, I think, is that living close to nature, being part of it, really, gives you a sense of awe, a sense of appreciation. Sakura told me it was actually hunting that made her feel close to the boars. She got to see them up close and learn how they live. They're part of her life now. Sakura is saying, when I think about eating them, you know, mostly they get thrown away. Most hunters think about killing boars as exterminating pests, so they rarely eat them, they just throw the carcasses away. But I really hate that. If I've taken a life, then I feel responsible for it. Eating the boar feels like the right thing to do. It's a way to express my love for them, my respect for them. It's like saying thank you for their lives, or telling them that they will continue to live on through me. That sort of feeling. It's like I'm setting down guidelines, you know? I admire Sakura's clarity and integrity. There's no tidy resolution to the conflict between people and boars. I'm thinking about the fallow fields by my house. If people keep giving up on growing some of their own food, like my neighbors did, that makes us even more reliant on industrial agriculture. And that's not good for wildlife either. We're part of the ecosystems we live in, and we shape them too. Farming puts us in conflict with boars. Climate change is making it worse. And it's because of humans that boars have no other predators in Japan besides us. So they've become our responsibility. Sakura says it's her dream to be almost entirely self-sufficient. She wants to be a hyakusho, which means like a person of 100 jobs, like a peasant farmer who can take care of all their own needs. She wants to live closely with nature, and she feels like the knowledge those peasant farmers used to have was superior. They could endure harsh winters, eat with the seasons, and preserve their own food. She wants to be able to do all those things, too. It's not like she wants to go back in time to when you could die of famine if you lost your crop, or when women were property. She likes being able to find information about almost anything online. But we've also lost something. Sakura 
は危険だと思います。Sakura says it's dangerous not to understand the cycle we're part of, that plants and animals make our bodies. She says people have only a vague understanding of that, but that they don't really want to think about it or they don't have time to. She says everyone is too busy. Japanese people are too busy. She wants to be different. Thanks to Hannah Kirshner for bringing us this story. To read more about Sakura and Yamanaka, check out Hannah's book, Water, Wood, and Wild Things. If you like proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Yumi Araki is our senior producer and provided translations for parts of the story. Caroline Rickert is our producer. Terrence Johnson is our associate producer. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Jeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Hiroko Miyokam for interpreting and to Michael Thornton for providing extensive translations. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Pete and Jerry's, Acorn TV, OXO, The Mango Board, Edible, and Sika Salmon Shares. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. 